Canada is home to the largest Ukrainian population outside of Ukraine itself and Russia. Over 1.3 million make Canada their home, and they're looking for more from the federal government when it comes to their homeland. Ukraine came into existence with the collapse of the USSR and became an independent nation. But it also has a neighbor leering across the border. Russia's been building up troops and equipment along the border with Ukraine in what it's calling military exercises. From the Ukraine side, they view it as intimidation, leading to a possible invasion. Canada has sent military aid in the form of funding more soldiers to train Ukrainian military and non-lethal equipment, such as night vision goggles and Kevlar vests. At this point, the federal government is backing off on lethal equipment. Now, should Canada revisit that decision? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. The West is watching as more than 100,000 Russian troops amass on the border. U.S. President Biden has been working the phones with allies to put together a response with, which would likely include sanctions. Russian leader Vladimir Putin has seen his approval dip considerably in the wake of COVID. In the past, when his approval plummeted, he found refuge by invading Georgia in 2008 and later Crimea. 2014. Some international analysts see this as a way of shoring up his support. Our unpublished.vote question asked you, should Canada send military weapons to Ukraine to defend itself? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. Now, we'd like to announce the unveiling of our new website, unpublished.ca. Today marks the beginning of our transition to the new site. Over the next few months, we'll roll out the new site section by section. We begin today by opening the voting, the podcast, and streaming social sections to the public. We invite you to check out unpublished.ca, participate in the polls, and consider supporting us by becoming a member. We'd love to hear what you think. All feedback is welcome and encouraged. Now, Russia does not like the Western influence in Ukraine, and in particular, its desire to join NATO. Russia sees that as encroaching on its sphere of influence. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll chat with Marcus Kolga, the founder of DisinfoWatch and senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. First, I am pleased to be joined by former Canadian diplomat to Russia, Gilles Breton. And Gilles, do you feel Russia intends to evade or invade, or is it just out to provoke? I, I think it's uh, not to, to provoke. It's not the word that I would choose, but I think I don't think it intends to invade. But I think it is. In, uh, I think Putin made it very clear in one of his speeches that what he wants to to do is create tension, tension that would sort of uh, allow for to, to provoke a discussion about uh, Euro European uh, security ar architecture. So the sense is that uh, I would say this: if you listen to the speeches from from Putin for last uh, little while. And of course, what he said, and what of course he said again, probably to Emmanuel Macron today in their conversation. Uh, I mean, I don't think there is any intent. And I think also, uh, to me also, I think Vladimir Putin understands very well that he and he doesn't need to hear it from Joe Biden that should he invade uh, Ukraine, uh, hell would sort of break loose, so to speak. So there is no way. I mean, the consequences of invading Ukraine would be terrible uh, for for Russia. So basically, the idea, as I see it, is to sort of create tensions in such a way as to sort of get people talking about serious matters. Interestingly enough, to me, I mean, I, I think you'll hear a very different view from the next speaker from Kolga, but I think it's what is interesting is the way the Russians themselves see it, uh, and the Russian population, I mean, and also the Ukrainian uh, government, the one, the only ones who have been kind of saying, okay, this, there, is, there is a lesser risk of invasion are the Ukrainians themselves, not the Ukrainian on the street. But the, even the foreign minister the other day who said, well, you know, uh, Russia doesn't really have enough troops to invade Ukraine right now. I, I think the point is that it's how to say this, it's, it's how you 
how the the, the alleged uh, proposed in, invasion serves your own interests, so to speak, and it doesn't serve very well the interests of the current uh, administration in Kiev, in the sense that they don't see this, uh, of course, they don't see it as, a, as really as a reality, and it doesn't serve them politically in terms of their own positioning in the, uh, if you want, in the international discussion. I think that's very interesting that, and um, you will hear, of course, people on the street in Kiev saying that they are very worried, and people here in Canada saying that they're also very worried. But it's it's the the, the views of people of like the foreign minister of Ukraine saying, ah, well, I'm not sure um, that the Russia can do this. And and we know, and and President Zelensky and President Putin both know that the uh, invasion is unlikely. So basically, it's the hype that is concerned. The hype serves Russia, but the ERP doesn't always serve the in the Russian the Ukrainian interest in this case. Since the 2014 invasion of Crimea, relations between Canada and Russia have been well, pretty well non-existent. Uh, yeah, exactly. why, why, why do you feel now is the time to engage? Oh, I, I mean, engage, <clears throat> not necessarily to, to engage in a, uh, I think it's a decision to engage not so much in, in a bilateral discussion say, between Canada and Ukraine. The point is that uh, Russia has come to the conclusion that it's time now to sort of have a serious discussion about these issues of European security. And I think it's also uh, perhaps un, unconfessed, so to speak, but on an unavowed uh, statement from the part of the of the U.S. president that he's also willing to discuss these big issues. In the sense that, of course, there is this idea that, uh, <clears throat> how to say this, uh, to a certain extent, it, it's it crass to say that a bit, but you know, to a certain extent, uh, as you entered earlier. You, the United States could say, well, we've achieved our objectives in the context of Ukraine, political objective in the sense that as it is now, Ukraine will never come back to Russia, so to speak, or never fall back in the zone of influence of Russia. So what is what is the issue for the United States globally? The point is that they, they would like, they, they, they see that the, the, the situation in Ukraine proper is very difficult to resolve right now. The, the, there, is a, there is an impasse in terms of the negotiations between uh, Russia and Ukraine on the situation in uh, eastern Ukraine, and Crimea is not going to be resolved anytime soon. So basically, the point is that, you know, okay, this is a frozen conflict, but we still have to, to deal with the, so the, the threat of Russia, so to speak. So can we, can we deal with a big threat? And perhaps, you know, to a certain extent, I would say it's like, okay, we'd like to refocus our energy on uh, other threats. I mean, let's say China, for instance. So the point is that, you know, uh, we, we've, uh, we've achieved, uh, um, and the Biden administration's problem is basically that it can see that it would be in the U.S. interest to have a, a proper security arrangement, so a more stable, more, more adapted security arrangement with um, with Russia. But of course, it, you know, the U.S. Congress, for instance, is really not on side on this one, and some of the uh, of the allies of the uh, United States are also not on side in that respect. Uh, Poland and the Baltic states, for instance, would not be very much on side. So basically, it's like okay. Uh, we know that the, you know, let's say Crimea, for instance, will not be resolved anytime soon. Uh, and then, of course, we have to sort of find a way to deal with to Russia in a more, uh, how to say, uh, spending less resources on, on, on Russia and sort of trying to get more stability in the region altogether. So basically now, but there is not a lot of, uh, how to say, I would call it public support for the idea of making a deal with Russia. And that's the, that's the problem, if you want. I mean, it's not that the timing is also, uh, I would say, why now? Because, of course, uh, to a certain extent, 
it may be that, for instance, the the and and that is what I think really hurts uh, Ukrainians is that they basically have, the the U.S. administration may have come to the view that you know the the Ukrainian problem cannot be resolved, and therefore you know we, we move on to the to the bigger issue so that we can refocus our energies. I mean, it's it's a bit crass. It's not it's not something that Ukrainians like to hear. For instance, definitely. Uh, you, you mentioned Russia's interest in uh, European security. Why, why so much interest in that? Well, I think the, the concern has always been uh, in Russia that uh, the, the, of course, they, they, what they see as, it's, it's a very, how to say this, uh, the perception of threat. You know, we, we perceive, uh, we in the West perceive Russia as a threat generally, okay, and Russians likewise. So they see uh, a threat. Now, the, the, the real concern from the Russian point of view, as I understand it, of course, you'd have to ask them to, to, mm -hmm. to get it right. But the point is that they, they see that there has been this kind of a, uh, for instance, in the last few months, increase of um, military support for, for Ukraine in, 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 uh, <clears throat> in, but from the part of the United States. So they would say, well, of course, you know, we, even without Ukraine uh, joining NATO, <clears throat> you have a situation where even the Ukrainians were talking with the U.S. about a possible special arrangement, supposed security arrangement, so that if if you want to, have, you could have a situation where Ukraine is not made a cannot get into NATO for for all kinds of reasons for another ten or twenty years, but you could have a situation where uh, United States in, gradually increases its military support to 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 Ukraine in a way that is perceived in Russia as very threatening. So that's the issue. And of course, the issue is that, of course, that you have this presence of certain type of missile, NATO missiles, US missiles in Europe already. So the, the, the concern, I think, has been sort of, you know, I described uh, in Moscow that, you know, you have uh, missiles that are very close to the Russian territory. NATO missiles, if you want. Yeah, but those countries are sovereign nations. Uh, why would Russia be able, and, and, and same with Ukraine, uh, why do they yeah. seem to think they have to have a veto or, or a say oh, in whether no, no, those no, no, people... No, 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 I think that's, that, that's the usual NATO line. It's not a right of veto. The point is that, okay, you say to, to NATO claims, of course, it's a defensive alliance, always. It's always claimed that that's part of the mantra. So basically you say, okay, you're a defensive alliance, but you're positioning your missiles in proximity of our territory. So um, we don't want a, a right of veto on what you do and what you decide. We're just saying that if you're going to put, put your missiles in the proximity of our territory, we'll put our troops in the proximity of your territory and see, see what you think of it. I think this, this is the issue in the sense, how do you deal with this idea? I mean, Poland and Romania, for instance, are free mm -hmm. to decide. They're members of NATO. They have uh, stationed some uh, US missiles on their territories. Okay, and the Russians say, "Well, we don't like that," um, and I think we perceive this as a threat to our territory. So, how do you deal with that? I I don't understand why they seem to think that. I, I, like I said, a sovereign nation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but that, this, what has it's like you know Tina Turner. What has love to do with this is has nothing to do with sovereignty. It has to do with military security. You know the fact of the the. Um, say NATO missiles in proximity of the Russian territory. Uh, I think uh, some of our colleagues are trying to explain this uh, in Washington that said, you know, how did the re US react when Cuba had missiles on its territory in 1962? Mm. You know, what is the reaction? What would, how would the US react if it had certain you know, Russian missiles in proximity of its territory? Well, you have the same reaction from Russia in the sense, if you are going to have 
NATO missiles, U.S. missiles, essentially, in the proximity of Syria, that is a concern for us in the same way as it was a concern for the United States in the Cuba crisis. That's really the, how to say, the, the crux of the matter in a sense. It's not a matter of sovereignty. And, you know, Ukraine can be, I mean, you, the point also, is, I think also, to, to get back to your question, this is a non-issue in the sense that the United States have made it clear to Ukraine, and of course that didn't go down very well, that uh, it could not be a member of, of NATO for another 10 years. So basically the question, it's like, a, you know, it, it does arise, of course, but it's the sense that the Russians know that Ukraine will not be a member of NATO anytime soon, not in the next 10 years, okay? Well, but then it doesn't resolve the issue of the, the, the overall security issue, in the sense that, you know, you're going to have uh, forces in proximity. Now, we, of course, in the West, react with some alert, alert alarm to the presence of Russian troops near the Ukrainian border. Uh, well, then, of course, the Russians would say, we also react with some alarm to the fact that you have, uh, in the proximity of Russia, some major offensive uh, weaponry that is installed there. Of course, the point is that the NATO will always say that they are defensive weapons, but they are defensive weapons that are very close to Russia. So they can be turned into offensive weapons rather quickly. Yeah, do you but, expect uh, candidates to, to send weapons to Ukraine? I don't think so. I don't think the, the, it's a very difficult question, but of course, the point is that what we could send, we could send some weaponry, but I don't think it would be, how to say this, um, uh, crucial. And of course, the, the weaponry that would be very relevant, that would be sort of make a difference, would be more weaponry coming to, from the United States. And the United States has been sort of, you know, I to say, uh, rather, I would say the word perhaps careful or prudent in terms of uh, guarded, if you want. It, it did not go full blast in terms of providing weapons to, to Ukraine. So the weapons that would make a difference in modern warfare are the ones that would be provided by the United States. And also, uh, if I may say, weaponry, not just weaponry, but the um, oh, everything that comes with the weaponry, so to speak, that's the the intelligence, the, the, the uh, oh, what's the word, the, the the, the the software, if you want, that allows right. you to target uh, it to make it more effective. It's not just that, you know, you, Ukraine used to be an exporter of weapons not so long ago. Ukraine itself exports a lot of, uh, still exports some weapons. So it's not like uh, the Kalashnikov or the the the, the, you know, the rifle that you need. It's, it's the more uh, sophisticated type of weapon that would be perhaps in, in the, the, the United States would be in a position to provide. We would not necessarily be in a position to provide those, this, this sophisticated type of weaponry that really the, the Ukrainians want. Uh, so I, I, I don't think it would make a difference. The, the, the numbers would be, couldn't be such that it would sort of make a big difference. It, it's the United States that can make a difference. And they themselves are kind of a, a bit, I think, guarded about it. What, for what their own reasons, because they don't want to, to 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 raise the temperature too much. That's the issue, also. What what do you see as Russia's end game here? Oh, I think it's it's uh, it's the idea is to uh, is to perhaps you know uh, essentially uh, there the number of objectives, but basically they would like probably uh, as a first thing you know what we need to do. If you go, I mean, you have to sort of be a bit of a wonk in terms of disarmament policy and so on and to say look what there are a few things that they probably want they know that nato membership is off the table anyways that won't you know we won't even discuss it for various countries like ukraine so that's not they've, they've still made that demand but that demand is is un, unacceptable anyways the point i think they would like to have is a situation where we can have a better uh, an arrangement that existed before the end of the cold war 
where, for instance, troop movements, uh, missile, uh, well, we used to have an agreement on uh, INF, intermediate nuclear forces or missiles, uh, you know, so some sort of agreement where we agree between Russia and NATO countries and other countries as well to say, well, look, we will not position in, in the proximity of your country offensive weapons. We will not position in the proximity of your country um, uh, troops. The idea is to sort of make uh, Europe a, perhaps a more uh, peaceful area in terms of, you know, reducing the military, I would say, overall, the, the basing of military, the, uh, military assets in proximity of one another. And that would be uh, both missiles and, and troops. I think that's, that's the, the stance of it. Jill, right. I, I want to thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I hope I answered your question. Gilles Breton is a former Canadian diplomat to Russia. While some see dialogue as a path forward, others remember that it's done nothing in the past when dealing with Russia. Marcus Kolga is, a, is the founder of DisinfoWatch, and he's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, and he joins us now. And Marcus, do you feel a dialogue with Russia will yield nothing? Why is that? Well, I mean, a dialogue, we can continue engaging in dialogue, but uh, Vladimir Putin isn't interested in talking. We talk about de-escalation de of the situation. Um, you know, de-escalation requires two, two parties. The Ukrainians and certainly NATO um, want to de-escalate. They're not interested in any sort of conflict. Um, the Ukrainians are interested in getting on with their lives, reforming their government, um, you know, taking care of corruption, becoming a uh, a member of the democratic, uh, their com community of uh, democracies. Uh, they want to join NATO. They want to join the EU. They're not interested in conflict with Russia. It is only Vladimir Putin who is interested in conflict, in crisis. Um, and we've seen this over the past 30 years that he's uh, ruled Russia, that the, he's in creating constant, uh, constant state of crisis in order to maintain power. Um, and so, you know, again, we can in, try to engage in dialogue. There's nothing wrong with dialogue or diplomacy. You know, I think that everyone would prefer uh, uh, a, a diplomatic solution to the crisis. I don't think that Vladimir Putin is interested in talking to anyone. He is only interested in, uh, in taking control, maintaining his own power and, and robbing Russia blind. Is this all about image for him? Uh, part of it. Um, you know, he 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 needs to stay in power. Like I said, he's he spent the past 30 years or more um, along with his oligarchs, the kleptocrats that keep him in power. They've been robbing Russia. He needs to stay in power. There is no democratic exit for Vladimir Putin. He can't just step down because there will be a trial. Um, it won't end well for Vladimir Putin. So he needs to maintain that power. Right now, uh, polling numbers out of Russia indicate the official ones uh, or the ones that are, are sanctioned by the, the government indicate that he's in the low 30s. I, I would suggest that it's probably more likely that he's polling in the high teens, maybe in the 20s. Um, we've seen this happen before. It was uh, his, his numbers were similarly low in 2014. Um, what happened then after the Olympics in February 2014 was that he invaded Crimea. Uh, he needed to create a diversion. He needed to create a propaganda spectacle for his own people. Um, I suspect that that's playing into uh, Vladimir Putin's calculus right now. He needs to create a diversion. Um, over the past 10 years, incomes in for Russians have been sinking. Uh, COVID is ravaging Russia. There are nearly 700,000 people now that have died from, from the uh, pandemic. Uh, Omicron has not even hit Russia yet. I think there's less than 30% of the population is, is vaccinated. Um, he's in for real trouble. And so 
having this diversion may help uh, may help shore up his numbers and support for him, uh, and certainly quell some of the um, unrest. Uh, you'll recall last year in January there were massive protests across Russia to protest the imprisoning of Alexei Navalny, an anti-corruption and pro-democracy activist who was placed in jail and is still remains in jail. Um, so you know Vladimir Putin is looking at all of this and. Uh, and I'm sure that what's happening uh, on the border, Russia's border with Ukraine, is is connected to it. Why does Putin feel that Russia should have or hold a veto over Ukraine join, joining NATO? Uh, well, you know, I think that uh, Vladimir Putin, when he looks in the mirror, he sees a little bit of uh, Joseph Stalin, uh, or would like to see a bit of Joseph Stalin in him. Um, I think he longs for, uh, you know, a Soviet-era Russian imperial power. He wants a bit of that back. And so um, these are the sorts of demands that he makes. Uh, you know, I think he, uh, he, he, and we know that he's, he's, one of his objectives is to try and recreate, uh, reconstitute the Soviet Union. Um, and so this sort of a demand is, is, is part of that and it plays into that um, uh, Vladimir Putin's own sort of self image. Um, but I also think that those sorts of maximalist demands are intended uh, to eventually serve as a pretext for him to invade Ukraine. So there are two parts uh, uh, to those sorts of ridiculous demands. He knows that the West will never uh, concede to that. And so, uh, um, like I said, uh, it may, may serve as a pretext to uh, uh, an eventual invasion. Sanctions were leveled against Russia after the invasion of Crimea, and Canada pretty well cut off any talks with them. But here we are again. Why would sanctions work this time? Well, I, look, I think that we, when we're talking about sanctions, we need to be pretty specific about what kind of sanctions we're talking about and the kind of sanctions that would uh, alter Vladimir Putin's calculus for war. Um, that means sanctions that target his wealth uh, personally and the oligarchs that hold that wealth for him. There's a number of, of well-known Russian activists, including Alexei Navalny, Vladimir Karamurza, um, who's been both of them have, have been poisoned by the by the regime. Um, they've uh, specifically pointed out that the top oligarchs in Russia are probably and most likely holding Vladimir Putin's own wealth. Um, a lot of those oligarchs maintain their wealth outside of Russia. Um, and we know for a fact that uh, at least one, if not more of those oligarchs, has hundreds of millions of dollars stashed in Canadian assets. So what Canada could be doing is targeting those oligarchs that we know have assets here in this country. And uh, it's almost guaranteed that if, if those, those assets are, are threatened, not just for the oligarchs, for Putin himself, um, he'll change his thinking about what he might do next uh, because he needs to protect those assets uh, from, from being seized up by, by Western governments. You know, Canada's foreign affairs policy has been pretty slim considering the turnover in that department. The, you know, it seems every other year we've got a, a new uh, minister of uh, foreign affairs. And is this situation a, a reflection of that? Um, I, I'm not so sure um, that it's a direct reflection of that. You're absolutely right. I mean, we have had this massive turnover in that role. Um, I'm not sure that Canada's voice um, is uh, as respected as it would be if uh, we had uh, a foreign minister who was able to um, develop and maintain those relations. Um, you know, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, is, has been there for nearly 30 years. Um, he's seen people come and go, but he's remained. Uh, there are other countries where foreign ministers have also 
been in place for a long time. In that role, um, you know, you need someone who can develop a relationship and and have that frank and open and open discussion. Um, you know, I'm not sure that Melanie Jolie is is quite there yet. So she's quite fresh to the role. Um, but I think that her office has made some uh, positive moves. The fact that she went to Ukraine was, I think, positive. It, was a, it sent a, a strong signal to the Ukrainians and our allies that Canada does believe that Ukraine is important. At the same time, um, you know, Canada failed to send uh, lethal defensive weapons to Ukraine. And I think that was a huge failure. I think the uh, Ukrainian government was disappointed. Um, I'm not sure what um, what the Canadian government was concerned about, you know, what consequences they feared, given the fact that uh, the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, little Estonia, little Latvia, little Lithuania have all uh, committed to sending uh, weapons to help uh, Ukraine defend its sovereignty. So um, I think that left a lot of people scratching their heads, that, that decision not to send those uh, lethal weapons. Do you expect Russia to invade Ukraine? Uh, I think that's what everybody's thinking about, isn't it? Um, I, uh, I, I, I don't think that um, Putin can afford a full-scale invasion. Um, this is not the Ukrainian army of 2014. Um, the army is, is much better equipped. It is much better trained. Um, the Ukrainian armed forces are motivated to defend their country. Um, Russia, on the other hand, has a bunch of young conscripts, and I'm not sure that those young conscripts uh, are interested in invading anyone. Um, I think that they're probably more interested in trying to get their lives in order and, and just live their lives. I mean, we're not living uh, you know, in the 20th century anymore where, where these sorts of large-scale large wars are, are, are normal. So uh, I don't think a large-scale invasion uh, would, is, is going to happen. Um, an invasion, a quote-unquote invasion of Donbass, I mean, Donbass was already invaded by Russian forces in 2014. Russian forces uh, and equipment have been sitting in that eastern province uh, all that time since 2014. Uh, and have been engaged in a sort of low-level grinding war um, and shelling Ukrainian positions. For Vladimir Putin to send extra forces into Donbass and to declare it part of Russia or you know, hold some sort of a sham referendum, I think that's most likely because he can still demonstrate to his own people that uh, you know, he's, he's been able to produce some sort of a result. Um, but without uh, having those body bags or too many body bags uh, come back home to, to Russia. So, yeah, I think that's going to happen. And I suspect that something will happen in the Donbass area before the end of the Olympics. And you expect a, a Western response? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I should hope so. Um, I'm not sure there's an, there's an appetite. Uh, you know, Joe Biden... Uh, referred to limited uh, incursions and the the fact that there may not be a response. Uh, I mean, this may be viewed as a limited in, incursion. Uh, we know that the uh, the German government has no appetite for holding uh, holding Putin to account. Uh, they have uh, business interests and of course they have the the gas pipeline, Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline that is piping uh, gas into into Germany and uh, and I don't think that that, that government is uh, is all that uh, is all that concerned. So I don't know, it remains to be seen. I hope that the, the West will respond somehow and impose, demonstrate that there is a cost to engaging this sort of behavior, but I'm not entirely convinced that that will happen. Marcus, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ed, for having me on.
Marcus Kolga is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and the founder of DisinfoWatch. Our unpublished.vote question asks you, should Canada send military weapons to Ukraine to defend itself? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote. I want to thank our guest today, former Canadian diplomat to Russia, Gilles Breton, and Marcus Kolga from the McDonald Laurier Institute. And I want to thank you for watching The Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm at hand. <laughs>